Welcome to Hidden Layers, where we explore the people and the tech behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Ron Green, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Sanjeev Namjoshi. Together, we're going to talk about topics at the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence and get a sneak peek into his upcoming books on active inference and the free energy principle. Sanjeev is a machine learning engineer at Versus AI. He holds a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Texas at Austin. His theoretical research interests lie at the intersection of neuroscience and machine learning and their application to the computational modeling and simulation of living systems. Sanjeev has extensive research experience in machine learning, computer vision, computational neuroscience, bioinformatics, and molecular biology. He's currently writing two books to be published by MIT Press on interrelated approaches to modeling self-organized and adaptive systems based on active inference. Welcome, Sanjeev. Great. Thank you so much, Ron, for inviting me. Let's kick off by talking a little bit about how you got interested in pursuing a career at the intersection of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I've had a very meandering path. I actually didn't discover active inference until I was in my my first postdoc, and even though I was already in the neuroscience field. And I think if we go back to, you know, really go back to undergrad when I was starting to get into science and thinking about what I wanted to do, um, I originally started in molecular biology, but I already knew that I really wanted to study something where we something where i could look at and understand some of the deeper philosophical questions around human nature and the human ex- lived experience and i didn't know what that was yet but as i kind of i ended up in molecular biology i was actually studying yeast genetics for 3 years and in graduate school before i switched into neuroscience and it was at that point that i started figuring out what i really wanted to do um but i also had a deep interest in mathematics and all of these things didn't really come together um until I was actually ready to leave academia and I was writing a grant and it was something I didn't want to do. I, I didn't know exactly where I was going to go, but I thought it was machine learning. And then I found this paper by Carl Friston, who we'll, we'll talk about soon, um, called Life as We Know It, which at this point, the field has um, taken that paper and moved further along in, in, in the evolution of um, these ideas. But it's a beautiful and wonderfully written paper. And it essentially that moment, I saw all of my interests coming together. And then going into machine learning, I've kind of moved through all of that until I'm now at Versus where uh, those interests have now collided. I'm uh, lucky enough to have had a, um early peek at your book, at the first um, volume of your book, which is coming out later this year, on active inference and the free energy principle. Let's, let's start there. W- what is active inference? What is the free energy principle? And how do they apply to... Uh, neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Right. Yeah. So the, so, uh, starting with active inference, active inference was created. It's a field of computational neuroscience that was created by Dr. Carl Friston, neuroscientist working at, uh, university college, London in UK. And he, um, basically took some of the ideas that already existed in computational neuroscience, uh, going back Really, it goes back to around 1880s with Helmholtz, um, which is this, this idea. It's called um, perception as inference. And later, as it kind of evolved, uh, Richard Gregory was most famous in the 1980s for this idea of a right. hypothesis testing brain. Right. Yeah. And active inference kind of takes a lot of that lineage, plus a lot of other fields that came together around this Bayesian brain hypothesis, which I'll describe in a moment. And active inference kind of comes out of this framework. So it's a 
way of describing um, human and animal behavior from the perspective of Bayesian inference, but it's not purely just computational. It also includes a lot of the neurobiology and scientific research that has gone into all these fields. Meaning it's not just a, a potential theory, it's actually grounded in some of our understanding of the biology of the brain. Absolutely. And, and that means there's a couple of ways to look at it. You can look at it from the biological plausibility angle, but also from the ML angle, it doesn't really matter if it's plausible. It doesn't do things we <laughs> right. want to do, right? Right. Is it useful? So, yeah. So there's different camps, depending on where you're looking at, you can kind of interpret it in a bit of a different way. Okay. Um, I'm really fascinated that it goes all the way back to the 1880s. I had not heard that before. Yeah. I thought it was a much, much more, uh, I realize it's not the, the current conception, but that the grains of it would go back that far. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so, the, you know, the idea in active inference is it suggests that the brain is, you know, constantly making predictions and, and updating its internal model based on um, how sensory inputs differ from predictions mm -hmm. and sensory input. Um, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, how is that related to the idea that, that, um, that he, within that mammals, um, humans, and other type of man mammals really enjoy being surprised. The idea that that uh, subverted expectations are maybe at the heart of humor. Yeah, so that's um, a really, really important and interesting question. And I think when I think about human behavior, I think that aspect of it is, to me, the most fascinating and interesting. Um, we haven't really gone into all the details of, of the kind of mechanism behind active inference, but just to to, to, as a prelude to that, when you talk about surprise minimization, surprise will actually has a technical meaning in information theory, but you can think of it generally in the psychological sense. Um, minimizing surprise is kind of the name of the game in active inference. You want to be predicting really well, which means you're not surprised by the sensory information you're receiving. Right. So then you think about exactly what you asked, like, you know, what about humor? You know, there's so many other examples like magic tricks and, you know, things we engage in where our expectations are subverted. Right. Um, I'm going to speculate here. This is, you know, piecing together some things that I think are really interesting uh, to give a response to this. And I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, curiosity is a natural part of human behavior. And it's it's built into the core of active inference, this intrinsic motivation right. where you, you, know, you go after things just for the motivation of just exploring the unknown and un, 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 um, unobserved things in the environment. Right. And that also applies to emotion. So, you know, dopamines will spike in response to um, unexpected emotional events. And um, not all emotions have this utilitarian survival value. We have things like fascination, insight, and curiosity, where we want to learn more, and that's an exciting feeling. Right. So we have that on one side. And then when you look at the other end of it, you start thinking about the ability to experience surprise in a comforting setting because not all surprise is good. I mean, there's absolutely pranks can go wrong. Um, there's fraud and people conning you. That's never a good surprise. Right. right. But, um, when we simulate in our brain, we simulate these extra possibilities that we've never seen before. So what would happen if I explored this unknown thing? And I think that the uh, idea of subverting expectations is a way of exploring those unknown possibilities that are out there um, in a way that is safe and simulated. In the same way we have art and storytelling, um, these sorts of are other ways of experiencing others' emotions and other things that we can't do. And some people are risk takers. They'll go and they'll, they want to do the crazy things. Others will read about it in a book and they get the thrill out of that. Right, right. I um. I remember stum the first time I stumbled upon active inference and it, it, 
um, felt so right to me because it 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 explained to me in a in a real unifying way a bunch of disparate things about human beings that felt very odd. Like you named some of them. The idea that that we um, enjoy being surprised and we might find it humorous. Even sometimes when you get surprised, you think about like a jump cut in a scary movie. It's surprising in a different way, but it still kind of can be thrilling, right? In a controlled environment. And the idea that uh, through active inference, the, the classic example that I always think about is like maybe a, a snake mm-hmm. flicking its tongue, sensing the air around it to um, uh, provide sensory input. Um, uh, to me, that is a a, a really compelling argument that um, why we why we love to learn, why we enjoy surprises, mm-hmm. why um, exploration is sort of baked into human nature is because it's it's a um, a very positive evolutionarily selected behavior, and our brains as prediction engines um, are at the heart of that. Absolutely, I think that's. Uh, you know, you can motivate, um, we haven't actually gotten into the free energy principle yet, right. but you can motivate these ideas from the perspective of evolution as well. Okay. Let's, let's do it. Let's do that now. Let's jump into the free energy principle. I'd love that. And then, sure. and then, yeah. and then tie that back into the evolutionary you thought you were going with. Okay. Yeah. And I'll also tie it back to active inference too. Okay. So we can have all this together here. So the free energy principle, I like to think of it as more of the, it's, it's based in statistical physics. Okay. So it's kind of the overarching background assumptions of, out of which active inference um, ideas come from. So, you know, active inference is really focused mainly on animal and human behavior, particularly things that have brains. When you talk about um, the free energy principle, you're talking more broadly about the survivability of living systems. So that will key into evolution in a moment. So before I can really talk about that, though, I have to go into a little bit about um, the mechanisms involved in active inference. I mentioned it was Bayesian inference. And um, Bayesian inference in this context means that um, we have some prior information about what the world is like. And that prior information, um, it makes sense. You know, you um, reconstructing the world from scratch every time would be inefficient. If you want <laughs> right. Right, to make quick decisions, right, the world has so much structure to it and the laws of physics don't change, you can leverage that. The interesting part of it is that we, uh, everything becomes an expectation. So it's all about a prediction that you think the world is going to be like, and you have sensory data that you combine with that. Um, and you are able to use that to then infer or guess what's the most likely state of something unknown out there that I don't yet know. And that's the process of Bayesian inference. But in the exact case, uh, computationally, it's usually intractable, especially if you want to make quick decisions, there's no way to do it in a world that changes like the one we live in. So that means you need to propose some approximate approximate way to find make that inference work. And variational free energy is an objective function that's introduced as a way to make that approximation happen. So when it's minimized, you are able the minim, the minima tells you what's your best guess about what's going on out there. So when we talk about the free energy principle, we're taking that idea of variational free energy minimization which tells us what's going on outside there. And we're saying that if we minimize variational free energy, we get everything else out of it. We can get perception, learning, attention, planning, and decision-making. All these things come back together under this one umbrella. So that's one aspect of the free energy principle, meaning active inference encompasses all those things. And the mechanism is minimize free energy to do that. So it's a form of approximate vision inference. So going back to what you were asking earlier, um, 
that's that's the way that uh, what the the value of the free energy principle is to talk about now. What do we know about living systems that are minimizing variational free energy? So under the free energy principle, we would say it's kind of a reductio ad absurdum argument, which is, well, things that exist and are alive, they must be minimizing variational free energy because if they weren't, they would be dead. That's the heuristic argument, just kind of giving the, you know, the, the general one. Now the field has evolved into a whole new field, which is the subject of the second book called Bayesian Mechanics, which tries to formalize that concept in statistical physics to say, you know, we are con constituted particles that are organized in this way and we want to avoid thermal equilibrium. So what are we doing as these living systems to avoid that? Well, the argument is we're minimizing durational free energy. We're predicting what's going to come next and that helps us survive but on the population level, the population has its own free energy minima as well. So different groups and their eco niches, um, their different ecologically adapted uh, environments they're in, they all have separate free energy minima that's local to those areas. And so you can create kind of a evolutionary very uh, variational free energy principle as well. Okay. All this. Okay. So I, I'm not sure if you can explain this um without using a whiteboard, but maybe take a stab at explaining when you say minimizing free energy, what is the physical process behind that or, or to the extent that we understand the physical process so far? So the formal name in the field is called recognition dynamics. So it's a way of specifying how is neural activity in the brain changing in response to information. So the change in neural activity is which can be encoded um, in various ways with different types of signals we can measure. Um, that change in activity is a minimization of a calculated quantity that we call variational free energy. So it's literally saying that the brain is calculating that that quantity and it's trying to minimize its actual value. And the states of that states encoded or represented in the different neurons in the brain are changing in a particular way such that variational free energy, which can be computed by populations of neurons, is actually minimized. Okay. And just to dig into that just a little bit more to make mm -hmm. sure I understand, um, you're measuring the signal on individual neurons or collections of neurons. And is the idea that there is a, a delta between that signal and some sensory input or something like that that's been trying, and that, that difference is trying to be minimized? That's yeah, that's correct. So I think the one important thing to take a step back and talk about is the fact that um, the your brain, the way that it's th we thought of, we think of it in 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 this field, is a generative model, um, and right. that means something very specific here. We mean a joint distribution of right. observed and unobserved variables, right. um, but it's a probability distribution about your beliefs about states of the world and sensory data. So that means um, you can generate predictions about what you expect. The world is like and that's what you actually experience you don't experience the world itself and the sensory signal which is crazy because it means that you know what you think what you expect the world to be like you make your own reality and we all have different generative models in our minds um that that create different realities of what the world we think the world on, is like. on that really quickly just make sure i understand that as well are you familiar with the the video where the where people are passing a ball around and their gorilla uh, walks the gorilla, the group yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. None, you don't see it the first time you see mm -hmm. the video. Is that an example of what you're talking about where you, you don't really perceive the, the world raw, you, you're, you're generating a construction of the world? 
Yeah. So I think that's that's a good example of something like that. I think that would that would also fall into like attention mechanisms, which are also, okay. you know, it's kind of gaining synaptic gain. So like how much how much uh, gaining you put about looking at noise, you're you're focusing your attention on certain areas of a visual stream, and you may forget other information because you're so highly focused on it. Gotcha. Um, you can still motivate that in 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 this kind of a language too, with with you know free energy minimization as well, if you, okay. if you wanted to. Okay. Um. So getting back to your question, um, the the field of predictive coding predates active inference, and it has its origins in signal processing and information theory and other things like that, video compression. Um, and the idea, the name of the game here is uh, the different layers of your cortex are constantly trying to predict the layer below. So they're saying, I expect as a top-down prior, what do I think is going to come in next as input? And the layer below does that. When you get to the bottom... Well, the very bottom is the actual sensory stream from your senses themselves. And so you have a top-down guess about what you're expecting, and you meet the actual sensory information. So this is encoded in, in populations of neurons in the cortex. So it's okay. not just like one neuron. It's a whole system of neurons that would be doing this. And then the mismatch that you get is a prediction error. And um, in this case, it's a sensory prediction error. So you thought this was a sensation you were going to receive because of your prediction. Now you're seeing what it is. So that difference is encoded in other neurons, um, error neurons, and this speaks to the really extreme importance of information theory when we talk about compression. Um, we talk about what information is in the formal sense. Right. It's what's unexplained, right? You don't care about what you already know because it's it's already there in your in your model, right? What haven't you explained yet? And you try to reduce that uncertainty. So all that's passed up is an error signal, and it then updates all the layers going up, and your model now conforms closer to the actual world. So the world is your training set is one way to think of it. You're constantly updating your predictions based on what sensory experiences you're getting. Um, there's more complication in that because we often know that we don't always believe what we see. Um, data can be noisy. There are reasons to ignore it. People don't change their mind. That's all these other layers that are on top there. But right. the fundamental mechanism, that's essentially what the differences that are being compared are. I, I can't help but kind of think about the idea that, that um you know, we, we think of young children as just being amazed by the world and then you lose that wonder as you become an adult. Maybe that's partly just because your internal model is getting pretty good, mm -hmm. right? And so it, it's it's sort of a natural uh, progression. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the free energy principle. So in traditional cognitive science, you know, it sort of emphasizes uh, the the brain's role as processing information. Um in contrast, the free energy principle uh, positions the brain more as a prediction generator. So, how does that how does that shift our understanding of the brain function? Because those are pr those are pretty radically different um, perspectives. Yes, absolutely. And and to be clear, like this isn't a completely accepted view in in neuroscience yet. So there are a lot of people studying this particular view, but um, it's one among many and it's and it's becoming more and more popular now as more uh, data is coming out and people are testing it um, in specific situations. But the potential that's really, really interesting here is, as we were talking about earlier, your expectation is what drives your experience of the world. Um, and so you, the one thing about this that's really, really subtle is um, we are beings that go out in search of sensory evidence that confirms our own models of the world. Right. So we're not like scientists. We're not going out there. It is a hypothesis testing brain, but we're not doing it in this like blind way. 
we're looking for things that tell us we're right, essentially. So there's there's all kinds of psychological implica- implications here, um, but there's two ways to look at it. One we already talked about, which is you use um, you use a sensory data to make your brain conform to the world, make it closer and closer approximation to the real world. Your your internal model, internal model matches right. the real world. Your representation right. of the world, right. meaning the brain. We talk about the brain as being a model, or at least it behaves as if it is. Well, depending on where your where your stance is philosophically. So when you take actions, because we haven't really talked about the action action part of this yet, which is really important here, that's active inference, is you make the world conform to your brain. You th- you expect the world to be a certain way. So then you go out and change the world in a particular way so that it conforms to your expectations. So a really simple example is when you eat food, right? You're from your brain's perspective, your body is part of the world. It's not it's separate from your brain and your brain has these certain set points or bounds blood glucose needs to be in this certain range and it suddenly starts getting these sensory inputs from the body which says hey blood glucose has fallen so now you have a prediction error your blood glucose is much lower than your brain expects it to be because your brain has a prediction i I predict it to be in this range and you know from prior experience that if you went out now into the world and you ate food you took those actions you would get rid of that error So you make your prediction a reality by going out and doing that. And you eat the food, your blood glucose goes back up and your brain says, great, now we've, we've eliminated that prediction error. Right. You've closed the loop. Close that loop. And you can just imagine, you know, for things like trauma, for example, you start people who are traumatized or have experienced PTSD, they will repeatedly experience these things that, um, because they're reliving the expectation, the world is now a scary place. The sound of that car horn is not, you know, you're not in a war zone anymore. You're just on the street, but you're primed to now expect to see the world in this really dangerous way. So all the signals you receive may st- still trigger and elicit certain responses in you. So there's a very wide literature in uh, active inference on how different aspects of mental health um, and uh, other types of aspects of brain function fit into this paradigm. Okay. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, I, I, on that topic, so the idea that, uh, you know, active interest active inference uh, is, you know, this model where decision-making is trying to um, select actions that minimize expected free energy. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that, how does that um, play against traditional models of the brain as sort of like this deliberation, this, you know, this, this deliberative process um, um, where you are thinking rationally and, and making, you know, free will comes into it. As, I don't know if you want to touch on that as well, but, you know, all of these kind of intersections are at play here. Yeah. So, you know, traditionally we talk about rationality. It's, it's comes from either like the literature and economics, um, in decision-making under uncertainty, right. um, von Neumann and Morgenstein's classic, uh, work. And, um, and so, uh, we talk about it in the, in the sense of expected utility theory, which it turns out that active inference, um, under certain, um, specific assumptions is compatible with expected utility theory. Um, one major difference is that a lot of work in behavioral economics has shown that at least uh, if we describe rational behavior as in monetary sense or maximizing reward, um, there that is still compatible with active inference. But now all the other behavioral effects, like when we think about the types of rewards that we maximize, they're not always monetary. Um, sometimes there's social cohesion. Um, there's other types of things that we might want to maximize that active inference allows us to incorporate. Um, and 
the problem, um, and actually deliberation too, I mean, expected free energy calculations, which is what is ex what is free energy like in the future? You're predicting because you don't know yet. These are unobserved states. Um, you are actually in the actual computations, you're creating little what if counterfactual paths. You're saying, if I did this, this is what sensory input I would get. If I did this after that, and then you can compare all those branches by averaging the expected free energy for each one. And that's essentially what the theory is of what planning in the brain is to a really large temporal horizon. So we are doing this sort of deliberative planning. The real key comes in when you consider that the brain is technically Bayes optimal, but the problem is that we cannot be rational agents because we don't have enough time. We are bounded rational agents. Right, meaning we, we can't think through the perfect next action constantly. Not unless, you know, like we're, we're, we are creating a society for ourselves where that's possible because all of our basic needs are taken care of, right? But our brains have not changed in any evolutionary sense right. for 40,000 years. Right. And, you know, you imagine you're out in a forest and you look in a field and you see 25 rabbits. The next day you see five. Well, you could make some theory about, you know, random sampling and probability and whatever, but it's much safer just to say, well, there's a predator out there. I'm going to escape and just go. And so a lot of our heuristics and our, our the biases that we have come from a survival instinct. And that underscores the act, the fact that the rational part of our brain, really what it is, is we're not trying to model the world perfectly. We're modeling it in a way insofar as that it helps us survive. Right. And that's that's the practical nature of it. It's Absolutely. If you if you if you think you might have seen a tiger, it's better to have been wrong about that, right? And and have a have an overly heightened uh sense of fear than to guess wrong once. Right. Because then you're, you're dead. And then, then, you're and dead. then if you want to be, you know, more reductive here, then you're not minimizing variational free energy. Right. So you would not be alive to say that you did that. So it's right. kind of how it all sort of ties in back to that. Okay, great. All right. Well, as a, as a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a machine learning practitioner working, you know, in the AI field, principally with deep learning techniques, the idea that you are trying to, uh, make a prediction that you are going to measure the difference between that prediction and the correct outcome, the actual reality of that, and then minimize that difference. Well, you're, you know, you're speaking my language. That just, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Do we understand, um, you know, within the deep learning world, within artificial intelligence, we're using backpropagation mm -hmm. um, to minimize that error. Do we understand how the brain is minimizing that that prediction reality difference? Yeah. So, um, uh, the, the as far there's no evidence so far the brain uses backpropagation, right? So, this is usually it's called predictive coding is the actual like term of what's going on the recognition dynamics that I referred to earlier. Um, this change of gradient uh, that's happening on all the different layers of the brain. Um, that essentially is a predictive coding type of architecture. Active inference adds action to that story and also a couple other bells and whistles that makes it a more complicated, uh, more universal kind of um, model beyond what predictive coding is saying. But the core actual learning, or I should say not learning is not the right word, but the, the updating rule is that error minimization where you pass the errors up the chain of the hierarchy to try to minimize prediction error. Um, and the thing that's confusing about it is you have like two-way messages. You have uh, downward facing messages that are coming are up top down messages and you have bottom up signals. Right. So you actually have things moving in two directions, gradients being updated simultaneously. So it isn't exactly, you can't use, for example, just classic backpropagation to do that. Um, you end up having these sort of state dependencies and things like that, that that come into play. 
Really quickly, I understand how the top-down signal might come, yeah. might be corrected because that's where the the sort of the prediction is meeting the incoming sensor mm-hmm. input. What is what is how are the signals going up being changed? That mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. So um, the way it's way it works is uh, they're usually called like autonomous states in, in active inference is what the name of the, the actual types of states that you're talking about here. Um, so essentially, when you go up one layer, um, information about um from the sensory information is sent up to the layer above and becomes like a sensory input to the next layer so it's treated like it's a sensory input when really it's it's actually a predictive it's a signal the brain is actually generating itself okay so it's like saying on this layer of the hierarchy using my model i'm going to simulate what the sensory signal would be okay and then you get that same error and then you go up the next level because you kind of have these these layers of abstraction as you go up so the brain doesn't have the sensory data anymore it only has a representation of the next layer of what that data would look like in this hierarchical chain okay does does that help uh, to stay on that point for just a second more, does that help? Is is it part of that trying to fine tune the sensory inputs in any way, or is it just about interpreting the sensory inputs? Um, so the process of like fine tuning, you mean like actually changing what sensory data you get? Yes, on the signal coming up. That's more when we talk more about like action, okay. which is kind of action happens. Um, that's all kind of built into this. So it's sort of it's hard to really talk about without really going into action and the active inference part. You take you take um when you when you compute expected free energy, um, you're there are different ways to formulate it, but some ways you can look at it is you're specifying a preferred state a preferred set of states and observations that your target distribution you want to get to. There is no actual like cost functions per se. It's more of like a distribution that you want to end up in. And there's like trajectories you need to to take of sequences of actions to get there. Okay. So there is a sense in which like you, you optimize the actual sensory data itself, but that's more on the action side. Okay. And that makes perfect sense. Okay. Great. And so just to, to kind of close that up, then, you know, predictive coding, you can see, you can see that backpropagation is a special case of predictive coding. Okay. So it's a more general theory, um, in terms of gradient based learning methods. Okay. okay. Um, you know, deep learning is by far the dominant technique within artificial intelligence right now. And I'm kind of curious, like, you know, is it, is it possible that the brain uses active inference in, uh, you know, the minimization of free energy, but that deep learning might be a better approach for developing AI or AGI in the same way that, you know, jets don't flap their wings to fly mm-hmm. because, you know, we were able to develop flying vehicles without being constrained by certain evolutionary processes the, the way, you know, obviously birds and other flying animals mm-hmm. were. So is, is it possible that it's, it's different but maybe a uh, more streamlined way to, to achieve intelligence or are there, are there aspects to active inference um, and – the way the brain works that are, are more powerful, more generalizable. Yeah, that's a really great question because I think it's always good to think about why are, you know why are we using the methods we're using instead of just you know blindly applying the most exciting thing you can see. Right. Um, and I think one of the there there are many different I think interpretations of this question and the way that I like to look at it is that um, what is the right tool for the job? What are you trying to do? If if you're trying to achieve human like intelligence, usually we call that like natural intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, we it's kind of a contrast to artificial and meaning like natural inspired by human and animal behavior. You would want to um, 
look at the brain because it has already done that. It has already solved it. It's the most complicated um, system that we know of, and it has successfully solved that problem. And we don't have to take every single thing that it does when we make our models. We can right. look at it, you know, why, why, what is it doing well? And we can take those pieces. And there could be, even when, you know, we talk about active inference, it's a relatively self-contained kind of model. It isn't like a cognitive architecture where you have like a speech center and a, you know, it's just a general theory about certain types of, um, uh, human-like intelligent characteristics and how we can model them. So you can even have a deep learning. There are ways uh, using amortized inference to even do active inference uh, and learning the parameters with uh, deep neural networks. You have a universal function approximators. Oh, fascinating. You learn parameters. Okay. That's actually been like the, er like the earliest attempts at scaling active inference went in that direction. Okay. So they aren't necessarily mutually, uh, they, they don't necessarily are incompatible with one another. Right. Um, but I will say that active inference um, looks like it's going to be far more efficient and less cost and com compute intensive than deep learning. So when, when you think about from a sustainability perspective, um, I would put my bet on active inference in the long term. It's not there yet because it has to be better. We have to prove that it's yeah. better than deep learning, right? Okay, I've but, got to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, can sure. you can you maybe just briefly explain what makes it uh, computationally less less uh, expensive? I think that's a, it's a definitely an open area of research. Okay. I think that's not a completely well understood, but I would say if I'm going to speculate that it has something to do with the fact that um, the very nature of the specification of a generative model uh, to begin with and the way that you're, you're designing the usually deep learning, it depends what you're talking about deep learning, but deep neural networks, at least usually we talk about those as discriminative models. So they're, they're just figuring out it's kind of a supervised learning type of problem. This is self-supervised, it's kind of an unsupervised sort of system um, we talk about active inference. And the ability to, um, the generative model essentially is able to represent or capture the data generation process. So that's in statistical terms, but what it means is, you know, whatever is going on outside our heads is constantly generating data that we sense. If you can learn the structure of that process, then you can recapitulate it. And that means you're looking at causal relationships between variables. You're learning the actual causal structure of the models. You have more context. It's not like just pure pattern recognition. Right. We, we are very good at figuring out things quickly because we know how cause and effect works. So we can jump past all these other chains of logic that we need to make. You know, we don't need to calculate all these variables to come to some conclusion. We just know how cause and effect works. We don't need to know like, you know, when I throw a ball that it's going to hit the ground, um, I just know that I can, I know it'll hit the ground. I don't have to calculate the exact equations of motion, for example. I just know that that's just the causal way that the world is set up. Um, right. I think that's the biggest power of it and strength of it. And then as a result of that being data efficient, you also need less compute to actually run it. Okay. In theory, there's still more work to be done in that area. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, my mind goes to, um, uh, as we're recording this, uh, OpenAI released the the Sora video yeah. generative model yeah. recently. And one of the videos that I think was most fascinating was there were two pirate ships mm -hmm. fighting in a uh, coffee cup. And, and what's amazing about that is some of the emergent capabilities of these generative video systems, um, it was doing ray tracing fantastically well. Yeah. The lights and the reflections were, were, were amazingly uh, plausible. 
Uh, it was doing fluid dynamics. Yeah. You know, famously very difficult to model physically. And, and, and as you mentioned with, uh, active inference, you know, these generative models, um, they have these powerful underlying representational systems so that you're not having to, um, learn these things, um, um, separately. They're kind of baked in. And, mm-hmm. and it, my mind goes to the SOAR model because, None of those capabilities were explicitly um, delineated, programmed, or, programmed yeah. Yeah. right? They just fell out emergently from it having to learn to generate realistic video across all these different um, environments and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there – are there some common misconceptions about active inference um, out there in the free energy principle, um, whether it's in, you know, neuroscience or within the AI field that are, that are sort of just common misunderstandings? Yeah, I would say that the two that come to mind, or there's a couple, but I think one is that uh, the, the first one is kind of, there are two sides of the same coin. One is that it's extremely complicated and too difficult and too hard to understand. And related to that is kind of the mystique that sort of come around it. I think it is certainly, it's a fascinating field and it does combine so many different areas. And that's been both its strength and its weakness. Because if you want to explain something, um, complex idea, the more fields you pack in there, the harder it's going to be. And you know, that has been, um, it's amazing because that's the whole, you know, that's attracted so much attention. It's explanatory power is in that it unifies so much. But anytime you propose anything that's grand and unifying, you're going to attract people who are <laughs> going to want to critique it naturally. And that's, that's, that's right. That's the process of science, right? right. Um, so I think that's the first thing I'd point out is that it's at its core, when you strip away the biology, when you strip away all the other fields that go into it, you're left with a really quite simple and elegant machine learning type of mechanism that's that any machine learning engineer um, would be familiar with um, in some sense. Uh, They would be dealing with time series type of data or partially observable Markov decision processes. It's all related to things that are very well known and understood. Um, And so I think that's the first misconception is like it's not as complicated as it appears. Right. Um, it's still complicated because it's, these still, things it's, are, it's but, still complicated. Yeah. I, I, um, I remember reading the Wikipedia page the first time and yeah. I'm, uh, it was complicated. Um, but, uh, to stick on that point, you know, it's, it's such a powerful predictive model. It's, it, to me, it's very akin to like evolutionary theory, which is, you know, all of modern biology, none of it makes sense without that foundational theory of natural selection. It explains so much, um, but it took quite a bit of time for it to be generally accepted. Um, so um, as we kind of wrap up here, I want to ask you about your book. Do you know when the first volume is going to come out yet? Well, I know that I have to deliver the first draft in June and there's some revisions. Uh, so I would say uh, maybe optimistically by the early part of next year. Okay. Um, not quite sure yet. So it'll depend on, you know, other work that needs to be done. And that's the first volume. And then you'll immediately jump on the second volume. Right. So the first volume is on active inference um, itself. What we've been mainly talking about here, we haven't really even touched on Bayesian mechanics, which is the second volume. Um, that field, just to be clear, is a lot more theoretical and is in under development still. So whereas active inference, um, there's, you know, the core ideas are, are probably fairly set. Um, there's just going to be, you know, a lot more work done to make it, uh, to expand the scope of it and scale it. 
Bayesian mechanics is very theoretical. Um, and if you're a person who loves the theoretical research, it's very exciting uh, as it's all based in this idea of physics of living systems um, and incorporates a lot of other information from non-equilibrium thermodynamics and other fields. Um, it's very cool, but it is a separate book that will be written in the future. Okay. Um, Okay. Definitely have different editions come out as the field evolves. Oh, I can't wait. I've, I, as I said earlier, I, I've, you were kind enough to share some early copies with me and it's, is going to be an unbelievable book. Um, okay. Well, we love to wrap up here by asking uh, the same question, which is if you could have AI automate something in your daily life, what would you pick? Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that constantly gets in the way of me trying to just, you know, live my life and um, spend time with the people that I love and uh, write more is that the constant just things breaking down. So like suddenly, you know, washing machine breaks down. Suddenly you have, a, you have an appointment you have to make, you have to do this. There's always something that kind of goes on, you know, and I think uh, I don't like context switching. For me, I like to focus on a task for three hours without being disturbed, you know. Um, if I, I guess I'm looking for something like a personal assistant kind of AI that could do you know, set up all my appointments for me, look at my calendar. Um, and also if I have to get like a contractor to come over, they could take care of all that for me and then I can spend time with people and do a lot of writing. Uh, that, I'm very that happy. Makes, I would love one of those too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't tell you much. I appreciated this. Um, it was great seeing you again. And I thank you so much for coming on Sanjeev. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Hidden Layers. This series is hosted by Kung Fu AI, a management consulting and engineering firm focused exclusively on artificial intelligence. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's episode, or if you know someone we should feature, please visit us at kungfu.ai.